<laughs> Adam, I'm so glad you shared today. And I'm glad you're here. You're amongst a bunch of sinners that have found Christ. We're going to help you grow. Stick close to Russ. He'll be like a father to you. Maybe even a grandfather. He's very old. <clears throat> but I appreciate your candor and your honesty. Thank God for His grace in our life. Thank God that while you were at St. Cloud, you met Jesus. You'll need worship. You need instruction. You need fellowship. You need to give your faith away to others. Tell them what God has done in your life. And what I say to Adam, I say to all of us, because we're all in the same fix, aren't we? But for the grace of God, where would we be today? Okay, I want to make a couple of quick announcements relative to the um, prayer vigil. This sounds like housekeeping, and to some degree it is, but I'm excited about this day. We're gathering with who knows how many. There will be at least those of us from Elam there, and there will be some from Annandale and from other places as well. And we're meeting to pray. We'll be talking about prayer in the message this morning, so I won't say anything else other than the fact that we're meeting to pray. There is no greater calling. Prayer is the work. Anything else we do in ministry is merely the result of having prayed. So here's what's going to happen today. We're going to have a schedule change this morning. We're going to ask that you please grab your coffee and your goodies and get to your classes by 10.30 today because the classes will be abbreviated. They'll last until from 10.30 till 11.15. And then for those who are riding the bus, it's going to leave at noon as scheduled, but we're asking you to please be on time so, they'll, so you'll have time to prayer walk at the Capitol before the prayer vigil begins, okay? We'll be talking a little more about this as we go. We've got some other announcements we want to make as well this morning. But in, right now, let's turn our attention to the message of the morning. <clears throat> So the question is this, how do you know when someone is maturing? Take a child, for instance. How do you know when they're maturing? There are indications you know. They overcome childish habits. You can tell a child's maturing when they're no longer bedwetting, when they're no longer sucking their thumb, when they're no longer fearful of the dark. When that begins to happen, your child is maturing. You can tell a child is maturing when they outgrow childish interests. They go from Sesame Street to whatever is popular now on TV for kids. American Idol, I don't know. They go from Barbie dolls to boys. They go from playing cars to driving cars. They go from wearing their clothes to wearing your clothes. Maybe not. <laughs> Used to be in our house, the first one up was the best one dressed. You know they're maturing when they develop certain characteristics and disciplines. You begin to see the formation of social graces. It happens. They begin to assume more responsibility. They begin to learn to take initiative. When all these things happen, you know your child is maturing. So the qu same question stands in terms of maturing spiritually. How do you know when someone is maturing spiritually? Not a child necessarily, but anyone. How can we tell when they're maturing spiritually? Well, hmm, strange similarity here. They overcome childish habits. 
They outgrow childish interests. And they develop certain characteristics and disciplines. For instance, Bible reading becomes a personal discipline of theirs. You've never met a mature Christian who didn't read the Bible. They minister to others as a part of their lifestyle. They lead a a balanced life in terms of prayer. When you think about it, that's why Elam exists. We exist to help people come to know Christ, grow in faith, and become engaged in ministry. You haven't arrived in maturity to the level you should have until you're engaged in ministry. We haven't arrived in terms of preparing you until we can help you become engaged in ministry. Now, because there's always room, more room to develop, none of us ever really arrive, do we? There's always room for improvement. Somebody said this, maturity is this. Here's a definition. I meant to put this in your message outline, but I didn't. So you can write it down if you would like. Maturity is this. It's self-consciousness in light of what we know to be right with the appropriate behavior as a result. Let me give it to you again. Maturity is self-consciousness in light of what we know to be right with appropriate behavior as a result. One thing that a person who's growing in their faith takes seriously is ministry. Now, that covers the waterfront. There's a lot of things we do in ministry. It includes a lot of things, but one of the essential things it includes is prayer. I've never met a mature Christian who didn't pray. And that's where we want to fix our focus today. Mature Christians pray. They have a well-balanced, well-developed, and effective prayer life. say, well, okay, that's well and good, but since uh, we're not all as mature as we might be, since this is a how-to message, how might we mature in our faith? How might we mature in our prayer life? Let's put it that way. I'm glad you asked. I came prepared. I want to share three pointers with you today. Three important things that we should do that will help us toward that end. Three things to do when we pray. First of all, let's follow Christ's directive. See, when is it important to do that, to follow his directive? Well, there are at least two times that I can think of when we wonder if prayer matters. And let's be honest. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've gone through a phase in your life where you have really wondered if prayer mattered. See, God, you're sovereign. you got it all wrapped up. Why do you need me to say anything? You're going to do what you want to do anyway. They forget there's that, de- that degree of elasticity in prayer where our prayers move the heart and the hand of God. But all of us have been there. What use is it to pray? We've been caught between dependency and independence. Have you ever been there? It's a very uncomfortable place to be. And let me say what I've said a hundred times from this pulpit since I've been here since a year ago, July. One good reason to pray, if we can never find another, is this. Jesus told us to. I mean, isn't that good enough? Turn to Matthew chapter 7 with me. These are well, well-worn well words. We've read them many times, but let's read them again. Matthew chapter 7 Verse 7 through 11, Jesus says, ask, just ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Those are potent words. Really very potent words. We've got to fix this, the, the setting for this. These words were uttered during what we call the Sermon on the Mount. When we understand that, we understand that this, these words that Jesus spoke were not just a carte blanche for any and everybody who wanted to pray. This is for people who have been declared righteous. It's for people who are sincere and humble and pure and loving in their spirits. It's an assurance to them that when they pray, they're heard and highly regarded by God. That's a profound thing, to be highly regarded by God to the point where we got, when we talk, God listens. That's incredible. Notice, too, if you will, as the righteous, we're taught some things regarding prayer in this passage. We're taught to be courteous. Ask. All you've got to do is ask. We don't come demanding. We don't come ordering God. We come asking our Father. We're taught to persist. We seek. We're taught to be diligent. We knock. Jesus gives ample counsel on prayer in this passage and, of course, in several other passages as well, as well as his own life. And if we follow his directives, we will pray because he told us to. So we follow his directives when we wonder if prayer matters. We follow his directives when we need an example to follow. Dr. James Stewart is with the Lord now. For many years, he was a professor of language, New Testament, and theology at New, New College in Edinburgh, Scotland. He wrote several books. I have one of them that I consider a choice book in my library. In this book, he briefly, it's, a, it's a, not a very large book, but in this book, he briefly analyzed Jesus' prayer life. And he summarized Jesus' prayer life with under three great facts Prayer was the habitual atmosphere of Jesus' daily life. Did you realize that? It was the habitual atmosphere of Jesus' daily life. He rose early to pray. All of these, by the way, in your message outline. All the references, you can check them out in your, uh, for yourself. He rose early to pray. He prayed after a day of toil. He prayed when crowds were around. Jesus was involved in public prayer. Listen to Mark chapter 8. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. There was about 5,000 of them. He took seven loaves, and having given thanks, that's prayer, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He went away with his disciples, and that would be considered group prayer, if not public prayer, um, to Peter, James, and John and went up into the mountain so they could have a prayer meeting together. Group prayer, corporate prayer, public prayer, whatever you want to call it, Jesus participated in it. Then also there were those times when he prayed alone. There was a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment that was brought to him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, the text says, Jesus put his fingers in his ears. After spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphra, 
ephapha, easy for you to say. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened. Got the guy away, got him alone, and they prayed. Jesus found praying, is found to be praying at all the great crises of his career. He prayed when he was called. He prayed when he chose the disciples. He prayed when strength was needed for miracles. He prayed when he was tempted. He prayed when he died. And he also prayed, his prayers also contain many different elements. Communion was one of them. We're not talking about communion when you take the bread and the wine. We're talking about communion as in communing with his Father. This is a big, big part of Jesus' prayer life, communing with his Father. And there were times, at least there was one time, there were, there were some phenomenal things that happened when he was praying to, to his Father. The text says he was praying. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and uh, his clothes became bright as a, uh, as a flash of lightning. Jesus prayed in thanksgiving, and he took the bread, and having given thanks, he broke it. Jesus prayed prayers of petition, as we find in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus prayed prayers of intercession, as we find in John chapter 17, where he prayed for his disciples. When we need to see an example to follow in prayer, we can follow Christ. So he prayed habitually, he prayed during crisis, he prayed using different elements. So ought we to pray. question is, do we? Or is our, the, is our prayer limited to, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. Or come Lord Jesus, be our guest, let this food to us be blessed. I know Christian homes where that's about it. But not mature Christian homes. Because maturity is a sign of growth. So the first thing we should do is in praying, if we want help in praying, is to follow Jesus' directive. The second thing we should do is to realize prayer's possibilities. And there's no easy way of saying this, but we need to get in line with those possibilities. We need to anticipate that they could be realities in our own lives at times. Let me give you a short biblical review of what happens when people pray. You remember a guy named Abimelech? He and his wife had suffered from uh, uh, infertility. And Abraham, the text says, Abraham prayed to God. God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bore children. Physical healing can be the result of prayer. So we should get in line with that. When we're ill, when somebody else is ill, we should not be afraid to come to God and ask for healing. Sometimes he heals through doctors. Sometimes he heals instantaneously. Sometimes he heals over a period of time. Sometimes his healing is the ultimate healing, as it was in Jenny Glucklick's life uh, last week. And the individual for who, who is prayed for goes to heaven, which is the ultimate healing. But we should get in line with the fact that God heals. You remember Jonah? The distraught prophet didn't want to go to Nineveh. Found that wound up in the belly of a whale. Repentance brought deliverance to him, literal deliverance. We need to get in line with the fact that God is a God who delivers. And if we need deliverance from anything, we can come to him. We can ask him. He delivers. You remember Pharaoh? Do you know that Pharaoh came to Moses at least four times 
and asked him to talk to God on his behalf four different times. And four different times it was affected. It was effective. God lifted the curse of the plagues against Pharaoh. Forbearance, that's what we call it. We need to get in line with God's forbearance. God didn't owe Pharaoh anything, but he gave him plenty. And of course, Pharaoh, we know, went, went his own way. Remember when Israel sinned. They sinned to the extent that the text says, let me alone that I, let, let, let me alone that I may destroy them. This is God speaking. Moses went to prayer. For 40 days he prayed. God heard and responded. You call that forgiveness. We need to get in line with forgiveness. When we've sinned or we know someone else who's sinned, we should pray that God would forgive them and forgive us. And of course, before he forgives them, they've got to be repentant themselves. But that God can move their hearts to that, in that direction. How about Nineveh? Nineveh prayed. Jonah finally came to his senses and went to Nineveh and preached to them. And there's a great revival there. And God repented. The text says God repented of the evil he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. That's a withholding of God's judgment. Are you in a place where you need God to withhold his judgment? We need to get in line with this. Because God will, when he sees a broken and contrite spirit, he will often withhold judgment and give mercy in its place. Hezekiah was told to set his house in order. And he asked for God's mercy. God's response, the text says, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will add to your days 15 years. That's grace. That's a gracious response. We need to get in line with God's grace when we pray. Is this coming through? Does this make sense? To pray is the change, of cor change the course of what can happen. It is a means of realizing possibilities. We need to believe God for the possibilities. We need to get in line with them. Why do you think we're going to the capital today? Because we like bus rides and eating out? No. We're going to the capital to pray. It's not a political rally. It's not a demonstration. We're going to simply pray. Because prayer presents us with possibilities we cannot otherwise hope for. Now let's just play a game for a minute. What happens? What would happen if as a result of our prayer, God were to visit this state with revival? What would happen if as a result of this prayer, significant things, changes would take place in state legislation? What would happen if legislators had a more keen sensitive of the person of God and the power of God and the presence of God in their lives? Could it happen as a result of our prayer? We don't know what God's sovereign will will be, but we're told to pray. But just imagine 40, 50, 100, 150, I don't know how many people will gather. It doesn't matter. God, God always works in a, with, through a minority. He worked through a minority with Gideon. Worked through a minority with those who marched around Jericho. When God's people pray, can something happen? Absolutely. So why would we not pray? We need to get in line with the things that can happen when we pray. As I said, let me say it again. To pray is the change of co the course of what can happen. It is the means of realizing possibilities. We need to believe for them. You know what? We need to see prayer as world changing. One of my favorite authors of years ago was a guy by the name of E.M. Bounds. Some of you have heard of him. Some of you have read his material. 
If I recall correctly, E.M. Bounds lived in the 1800s, and he wrote 11 books, nine of them on prayer. He was a man who understood prayer. He's a man who prayed. And I want to quote him today in terms of how world-changing prayer can be. Just listen to what he has to say. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be. Now, that's a simple statement, but listen to the profundity of it. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be. The mightier the forces against evil everywhere. Prayer in one phase of its operation is a disinfectant and a preventive. It purifies the air. It destroys the contagion of evil. Prayer is no fitful, short-lived thing. It is no voice crying unheard and unheeded in the silence. It is a voice which goes into God's ear, and it lives as long as God's ear is open to holy pleas, as long as God's heart is alive to holy things. God, listen to this, God shapes the world by prayer. Prayers are deathless. The lips that utter them may be closed in death. The heart that felt them may have ceased to beat. But the prayers live before God, and God's heart is set on them, and prayers outlive the lives of those who uttered them, outlive a generation, outlive an age, outlive a world. That's prayer. That man is the most immortal that has done the most and best praying. They are God's heroes. I believe this. I believe it absolutely. Did you know that prayer is the single greatest means of bringing success to God's cause? It's the single greatest means of bringing success to God's cause. Listen to Bounds again. It is true that the mightiest success that comes to God's cause, pardon me, it is true that the mightiest successes that come to God's cause are created and carried by prayer. God's conquering days are when the saints have given themselves to mightiest prayer. When God's house on earth is a house of prayer, then God's house in heaven is busy and all potent in its plans and movements. Then his earthly armies are clothed with the triumphs and spoils of victory, and his enemies are defeated on every hand. God conditions the very life and prosperity of his cause on prayer. There's much we can do after we pray, but there's nothing we should do until we pray. It stands to reason, then, that as important as prayer is, that we would expand its borders. We're God's people. If we don't pray, who will? It's our prayers have the promise of being answered. If we don't pray, who will? We can do all sorts of things after we pray, but we shouldn't do anything until we pray. We should expand its borders. How do we do this? Let me suggest two ways. We should increase the time we spend in prayer. Now, I know how it goes. I live in the same world you live in. We get pressed, we get busy, we get discouraged, and often what we back off on is the most important thing we should be doing. We back off on prayer. When we're busy, it's just a quick, well, hello, Jesus, be with me today, thank you, amen. When we're burdened, we begin to see the value of prayer. We should increase the time we spend in prayer, personally and in groups, through a varied schedule of prayer. 
Look at the opportunities, even in this church. This church alone, there are many, many opportunities. How many of them are we taking advantage of? Special times devoted solely to prayer. We should increase the agenda we use in prayer through the things for which we pray. Psalm 67 is an interesting statement, I think. <clears throat> the first two verses are what we're going to camp on. The psalmist asks for a blessing. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Simple, straightforward. But he asks for a blessing for a reason. If you look at verse 2. That your ways may be known on earth. Your salvation among all nations. See, this lists prayer out of the vein of the always purely personal. When we pray, we should have an expanded view. We should pray as though the world were our parish because it is our parish. We can make history change in this world through our prayers. We should be doing this. David Bryant has been at the vanguard of the modern prayer movement. He's written many books on prayer, one of them titled In the Gap. I want you to listen to this comment. When we articulate personal requests in keeping with our uh, with our growing concern for revealing God's name, kingdom, and will among all earth's people, we are praying about the things God wants to do most. So where are we, Elam, in our prayer life? Have we kicked it into autopilot? Do we just pray sort of token prayers, sort of nominal prayers, sort of it'll get me by during the day kind of prayers? Or are we earnest? Are we on our knees? Are we taking advantage of opportunities? Are we following Jesus' directives? Are we getting in line with those elements of prayer that can be ours if, if we pursue them? Are we expanding the borders of prayer? How can we do this? How can we expand the borders? Well, here's a couple of ideas for starters. Take advantage of the table, the online community where prayer requests are shared regularly. Take advantage of the, the, uh, the email prayer line, prayer, prayer chain that, uh, through which is also uh, disseminated prayer requests. Take advantage of prayer when you're, when you're with groups, when needs become evident. It's not wrong. In fact, I would be encouraged myself to see people stopping in the hallways around here to pray with each other. Coming back into the sanctuary and using the altar as a place of prayer when we find out there's a need that warrants prayer. Let's hit it immediately. Lest we forget, because we are, we have, we're born to forget, aren't we? Some of us do a great job of forgetting. I'm majoring in forgetfulness anymore. So when somebody talks to me about an issue, often I'll say, let's pray about it right now. For one thing, I don't want to forget it. For the other thing, it's the need of the moment. Let's seize the hour. Let's seize the moment. Let's pray. We can pray about what this local church is doing. This ought to get all of us reading our bulletins. We can use our bulletins as a prayer guide. It underscores the value of prayer in our Christian life. So what about it? Going to the capital today? Oh, no, I don't like the drive. Do you like prayer? I don't know. It's just the long ways. Do you like what God might do as a result of our prayer? Could it be? I mean, really, let's play imagination game here. Can we imagine what could happen as we pray? In the sovereign will of God, can we imagine what happened? What could happen? 
as we pray for state legislators, as we pray for legislation, as we pray just for a spirit of God consciousness to re-enter our world in Minnesota politics. Not saying it's gone. There's a lot of prayer in capital at the Capitol. But I'm saying we can increase the intensity. Who knows what God will do when we pray? It's worth thinking about. Our goal today has been threefold to underscore the value of prayer in our Christian life, to get excited about rededicating our lives to prayer and to suggest some approaches to strengthening our prayer lives. I hope that we've accomplished the goal. I hope that we will all respond accordingly. Remember, maturity is self-consciousness in light of what we know to be right and the appropriate behavior as a result. Let's pray right now, shall we? Father, we come to you right now in Jesus' name. Our hearts were encouraged earlier on when Adam spoke of finding God at St. Cloud. That's an answer to prayer. Who, who do we know that's been praying for Adam? Some people very specifically. Some people generally. I know that I've prayed when I've passed St. Cloud at times that God would speak to the hearts of inmates there that they would respond to the grace and, grace and mercy and power of God in their lives. We pray, Lord, that you take off the blinders if we're wearing them about what prayer can accomplish. We pray today for this prayer vigil that you would bless it, that you would use it. We pray that you'd use it in our own hearts, that we would be greatly encouraged as we go and find other believers who agree with us that we should touch the hem of your garment in prayer. But we pray that you'd go beyond that, Lord. Pray that you'd heal our land. We pray that you'd send an awareness, a sensitivity to spiritual things, that just as people, as people have become sensitive to sensuous things, we pray that you'd make people sens sensitive to spiritual things. We pray for an awakening. We pray for a revival in the church and an awakening in the community. Oh, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, and we pray that you'd help us to mature in our faith so that we are more than ever people of prayer. In Jesus' name we ask it, O Lord. Amen. We're going to wait upon you for the Lord's tithe and your offering right now. I'm going to ask that uh, as you prepare to give, I'm going to ask that you'd also include your connection card and put it in the offering. May God bless you as you give. I'll be back in just a moment.